0: Own story, that we find meaning and significance for our stories in light of God's greater story. That we look at the world around us, and in one breath we can see the beauty, the majesty, the grandeur of God. And then in the next breath, see the brokenness and the trauma and the hurt of this world. And so we're left to ask, what happened? I mean, how do we get here? God, this surely can't be what you intended. But then we see the, the, the roots of our beginnings in Genesis, but are all pointing forward. That God would finally fulfill his answer, his plan of salvation and redemption in Jesus. Now God is making all things right, restoring all things back to himself so we've watched over the last several chapters, uh, beginning Genesis 1 on to 11, as humanity has made this consistent decision, this demand to live life on their own terms, apart from God. Having turned their, their back on God, they turned against one another. And so we see the impact of sin, not just in individual lives, but in the way that it affects how we interact with one another. With blame and accusation, fear and insecurity. Shame and guilt and hiding, and how that sin has infected not just the family unit but then is now spread out into society, all of culture, all communities impacted by this this uh, sense of of failure, this separation apart from God. But here, as we start today in Genesis chapter twelve we 'll see how God calls forward one man and his wife this couple out of the brokenness of humanity to enact his plan of salvation and redemption for the entire world. So I'm going to start here in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. If you want to follow along with me, we'll make our way through this story. And again, hopefully we will find ourselves in the story and God may even begin Our hope to reframe our story in light of his. So now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your homeland, and your kindred, your family, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Let's stop right there. Because There's a lot packed into this one verse that kind of sets the stage for the next entire section of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 has been building to this point. The ever-expanding impact and consequence of sin and now zeroes in. Now, this isn't the first time that Abram shows up in the story. Actually, he's mentioned a few verses earlier in chapter 11. If you go back to Genesis uh, to 11, 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and, and Haran. So the Genesis 11 is giving us this genealogy that runs from the line of Noah through his, uh, his, the, the obedient son, Shem, and on down into finally getting a great, 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 great grandson, Terah. And we find out, Terah, when he's 70, he has three children. His firstborn is Abram, and then he has two other younger sons. And it continues on. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Lot's going to become important later on in the story, but he is uh, Abram's nephew. Now, Haran, the youngest son, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where this family has uh, rooted themselves. And Abram and Nahor, they took wives. Now the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So why does the Bible spend so much time kind of laying out this particular family? Yes, obviously, Abram's going to become significant to the story, so it gives us a little bit of background. But if you're following it along as this genealogy is building, as you're seeing that this plan for, for God's people to, to rediscover, to be redeemed, restored by God, this generation after the next generation after the next generation, you actually get to this point in the genealogy and you hit a dead end. Because Abram, the oldest son, the one who the family line is supposed to get passed through, has married this woman. The first thing we find out about this particular woman is what? She's barren. She can't have kids. It's the end of the genealogy. And yet, for some reason, the story continues. Like we should think, God, if you're going to have a plan that you're going to bring about any kind of redemption here, any kind of restoration, if, if your plan for, God, for your people to dwell with you as it was in the Garden of Eden, if that's going to come to pass, then you're going to need to pick a different family. Because this one ends in just a few years. But we know that God is not hindered by the things that we see as dead ends. And so we have this setup of this family under the patriarch Terah and his three sons, two now after one has died, the oldest having chosen this wife. And now God shows up to Abram. In the midst of his responsibilities is the oldest son in his family and he tells him, to leave, to leave everything, to go from your homeland, from the land that you know where you dwell, to go from your family, and even more significantly, to go from your father's house. And that term there is actually a really powerful term, bedoth in the Hebrew for the, the household of the father, because your entire life was defined by the father's household in which you dwelled. It was a patriarchal culture. Everything was about the father's house. Your whole role as a son was to further the legacy of your father. It's not like today when that 30-year-old still living in their mother's basement, you're like, okay, bro, it's about time for you to move on out of here. For Abram to get up and leave his father's house is to leave everything. It's not accepted or expected. This is an unacceptable thing. This isn't a dishonoring thing. You don't leave your father's house, especially as the oldest son. You have responsibility to carry on your father's name. You have a responsibility to carry on your father's trade. So if your father's a farmer, you're going to become a, fa- a farmer. And you're going you're to build your father's farm. You're going to tend your father's land. And his legacy is going to pass on to you. You're responsible. Your identity is wrapped up. Your future is wrapped up. Your provision is wrapped up. Your protection is wrapped up. Everything is about the household to whom you belong. And the first thing we see God do is to say, leave it all. Go. Go. Leave, the, leave your father's calling. Leave your father's trade. Leave your father's protection. Leave your father's provision. Leave your father's identity. Because I'm going to do something new. It's actually interesting the way this echoes Genesis chapter two. Remember when uh, God crafted Eve, the the jewel, crown jewel of creation, and he, and she bring and God brings her to Adam, and Adam said, "Now this, this is what belongs to me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh." And then what is the next thing it says: for this reason, because of this intimate powerful special covenant relationship for this reason a man will what leave his father and his mother strike out on his own and the two will become one flesh and it's with that echo that God calls this man to leave his father's house to start off into something new to begin a new covenant a new relationship a new beginning So how do we find ourselves in that story? Well, for some of you, you know that moment that God called you to leave what was your life, your past, a friend group, a way of living, maybe a place or a circumstance that God called you to leave, to begin something new with him an old identity because he wanted to to reveal to you your true identity, who you are, who he made you to be, what he's called you to do. Maybe a vocation, maybe a lifestyle. The other thing that was significant about a father's house is that you're not just leaving his trade, his vocation, calling, identity, all the things that came with being a part of that family. You're also leaving your father's God's. It was a a polytheistic culture, meaning that typically there's lots of gods and the gods were usually associated with one of two things or somehow connected to both. They were either associated with the land, with the place. So if we thought about it here, we'd say that there was a God of Monroe. There's a God that belonged to Monroe. He didn't leave Monroe, but he was a God, if you wanted to dwell in Monroe, you better keep him happy. And, or there was the gods of your fathers, the, the patron gods, the gods that protected your family. And so in this case, God is very specifically saying, I want you to leave all of that. You're going to leave the land and you're going to leave your father's household. And so for us, there are times that God has called us, or Many of you have a moment in your life where God said, there were things that you were worshiping. There were things that you were setting your hope and your future in. There were things that you'd wrapped your identity up in. There were things that that gave you a sense of security that you idolized, that you built your future on. And I'm asking you to leave all of that and to trust me to follow me, to give your life to me. And what we find about Abram is that he's willing to say, yes, I'll go. The amazing thing is he doesn't even know where. God tells him, I will show you the land. I know if it's, if it's me and God saying, you know, there's times in my life that I feel like God's moving us into something new or he's asking us, like even us moving to Monroe, which is 10 years ago, by the way, which is crazy to think about. It feels like an eternity. But 10 years ago, God, on, on one hand, on the other hand, it feels like it was yesterday. But a new path, a new calling to leave an old life, whatever that might be, I want to know how the next 10 years maps out. All right, God, it's like, okay, great. I'm willing to go, but it'd be great if you could just give me not just the next step, but like the next 10 steps. And then in five years, what's this going to look like? Actually, even better yet, in 10 years, what is this going to look like? Kind of give me a, 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 a dream map, so to speak, and then I'll trust you enough to go. Then I can trust you if I know the plan, if I know where this is headed. But the call of God on Abram's life is, no, trust me, walk with me, follow me, listen to my voice, and I will lead you every step of the way, but I'm not giving you much beyond the next step. Now, he does give him a glimpse of the final outcome, where this whole thing is headed. And God says to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So God does give him a glimpse of where this whole thing is headed. He doesn't give him a five-year, or ten-year plan, but he does give him the the, the point of this whole journey. And one is that God wants to bless Abram. Think about the story that we just uh, looked at last week. Brandon did a great job looking at uh, Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel how mankind said that they wanted to secure a place for themselves on earth. They wanted to to, uh, establish a name for themselves and make sure that their name was never wiped out. In other words, apart from God, they wanted to secure a future for themselves. They wanted to make their name great, to be safe and secure on their own terms apart from God. And God says, no, 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 we're not going to have any of that. And he actually scatters them across the face of the earth. What seems like an act of judgment is actually an act of grace. That God doesn't allow them to build a hope and a future, a kingdom where they are the center of their universe. But instead, he limits them so that eventually they will have to return to seek him. But in this case, God says, I want to bless you. I want to give you a place. And I want to to make your name great. I will do this for you. Don't do this for yourself. All you need to do is trust me, listen to me, and follow me. And I will do these things for you. In other words, keep God the center of our story. I know for me that um, I live most of my life as if I am the, the main actor in this drama called life. And that most of the people around me, even the people closest to me, like Sadie and my children, they're just kind of like co-stars on my show. And it's all great until they start to run with their own little plots. Like, I figured out my day, and then all of a sudden they come in with an interruption that I hadn't planned on. And these little delights of God's blessing in my life become major hindrances and interruptions. Why? Because it's my world, and I'm the center of that universe. I don't know that any of y'all struggle with the same thing. And when we're sitting in traffic, as if, like, really what's happening in the world is what's happening in my car. And all of those other cars are just kind of white noise in the background. And what we find in Abram is a man that's willing to, to recognize that, no, the center of this story is God. The one that's driving this story is God. And Abram is just gets to be a player in on the action for, for part of the time. Whereas everything up to this point, man has tried to establish himself as the center of the story. Secure their existence apart from God. Make a name for themselves. And I'm going to keep saying it. And God just keeps saying, listen to me, obey me, follow me, and I will do these things for you the other massive thing here is that when God promises to bless Abram for following him, going with him, listening to him, notice the point of the blessing. And this is huge. The point of God's blessing in Abram's life is not to bless Abram, is it? He says, I will bless you so that, why? You will be a blessing. And I will bless all of the world through you. If we began to shift our minds around that reality, that the blessings of God in our life are not simply for us, but are that we might become a blessing to others, it would change everything. It would change our posture towards the things that we've received, the gifts in our lives, the the circumstances and moments that we find ourselves in. In fact, right now, just mentally, or you can write it down in front of you. Just make a list. Like, what are the blessings in your life? Relationships, resources, stories, gifts, talents, experiences, wisdom. Where are the places that you have received God's blessings? What are the blessings that you have experienced? And what if every one of those blessings wasn't just that you would experience the goodness and the faithfulness of God for yourself, but so that God could bless others through you? What would it look like to hold everything we have received as if it was not meant for me, but I was simply a conduit through which God could bless those around me? What if every room we walked in, the thought isn't, what does this room have for me? But what am I carrying by God into this room? What if the fact that we live in Walton County, that we dwell in Monroe in this place. How is this town any better because we lived in it and we followed God in it and God chose to bless this place through us? Your neighborhood, your classroom, your employees. What if the reason you are there is not to receive from them not to get something from them. Not to make your life better. But what if the whole reason that you are there is to bless those who are there with you? Now how would that change the world? If a whole bunch of people recognize that they are not the center of this story. They are not the center of the universe. There is one God and this kingdom belongs to him. And he sits on that throne. And he asks us to trust us, and he will enact his plan through us, and he will bless us. And the reason he blesses us is not that we would simply enjoy his blessing, but that we would become a blessing to those around us. So Abram leaves. He goes. He follows God. And Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. So there's this sense that he's leaving uh, something significant to go follow after God into the unknown. And the people they acquired in Haran he's established his own little household now. He becomes the patriarch. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, in that moment, as readers, or as actually would have been hearing this story in oral tradition, as they're telling this story, you, you should have had sort of a uh-oh kind of moment. Sort of like the seventh inning of the Braves game last night when the Dodgers loaded the bases. And if you've been born and raised in Atlanta, every one of you had that thought. I know how this story ends. <laughs> keep coming to that game cuz i just can't believe anyway <laughs> up to this point every time that as the people are moving farther and away farther and farther away from eden in other words farther and farther away from the presence of god the first thing they try to do is establish a city for themselves a permanent place that they can establish a sense of security and stability control and presence on their own And so God has led him out. He's led him out from his father's house. He's led him out into the the future, to the land that God has said, I will give this to you. And now he's showing him the land that he's going to give him. So what would he expect Abram to do in this moment? Now that he sees the land that God has already promised him, to build a city, to establish himself in that place, to gain a sense of permanence, of, of, of security, of stability. Now is the time his name is going to be great. But instead, what does Abram build? He doesn't build a tower to himself, but instead he builds a tower to God. And it tells us that in that place, as God is is showing him his future, his hope, the promise, so he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, a place of worship. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. In other words, that what Abram makes permanent is not a place for himself. And the name that he Uh, that that he exalts is not his own name. The thing that he makes permanent is the place of worship to God, the promises of God, that he recognized what is gonna last is God and God's promises. And Abram recognizes that his place in the story is simply a temporary wanderer, there for a season. And in fact, the very promises that God talks about, Abram will never see the fulfillment of generations from Abram will never see the fulfillment of. And Abram recognizes, I'm the temporary one in this story. And so he builds a permanent place for God and he continues to dwell in tents, a temporary dwelling. And continues to move, continues to listen, continues to follow. Now as amazing as Abram is, one thing that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't hide any of the failures and flaws of God's people of God's of, of the ones that God chooses to partner with. In fact, this is, is unique in ancient uh, in ancient history, because most every time that you get an account of patriarchs or kings, what you're going to find is just simply glowing endorsements of their reigns and their history, all the amazing things they did, the people they conquered, the cities they built, why that they were the best king ever or why their people were the best ever. And all you find is just positive, positive. In fact, what you would think is that they lived perfect lives and were perfect kings, perfect patriarchs, that they just did everything exactly. In fact, you would begin to actually think that they're kind of like gods. And in fact, they actually believe, for many of them, that they were gods. And here in the Bible, what we find is that over and over again, God's chosen, the people that he carries his plans out through, are fail, like flawed and failing, struggling human beings. And even Abram that's just been set up as a man who's able to partner with God, willing to go with God, willing to leave everything, to, to wander with God into the unknown, to trust God's promises, to keep listening to the voice. We're gonna find a chapter in Abram's life where God takes a back seat because the first thing that Abram faces when he begins to get a glimpse of God's promises is struggle and threat. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and in a, a desert world, famine usually would be caused by drought. Because water was everything. Water was life. If you didn't have water, the crops aren't going to grow. If the crops don't grow, you're not going to have food. If you don't have food, you're going to die. And there was one place in that part of the world where you could guarantee water. Because every year, no matter how bad the drought got, no matter how far it spread or how long it lasted, every year at some point in the year, the Nile would flood. And so there was one place that you could always go, that you knew there'd be water, so you knew there'd be food, so you knew there'd be okay, that you knew that you'd be okay. Egypt. And so what does Abram do? He does the exact common sense when he's beginning to walk with God into the promises, and all of a sudden the first thing he faces is a threat that could take, take away the whole thing. And it says that Abram went down to Egypt to journey there, for the famine was severe in the land. And what do we notice here? For this next section, God doesn't show up from Abram's perspective until God inserts himself back into the story. And so for just a moment in Abram's life, he takes matters into his own hands. He's been walking with God, listening to God, following God. And now when there's a threat, he does what everyone else does and follows them to Egypt. And there will end up being long-term consequences of that decision But even right now is a a pretty, you could say, shady episode in Abram's life. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, hey, listen here. I know that you are a woman, that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Which is pretty interesting if you think about it because Sarai at this point is 65 years old. So there must have been something really amazing about Sarai that at 65 he's like, dude, you are so beautiful that they're willing to kill me to have you as their wife. Now the interesting word about that word beautiful is that it's not just this idea of like, this idea of Western beauty as we, as we hold it. But it's this idea of being captivating. There was something about Sarai that was captivating enough that he knew that she was, uh, that others would look at her and say, I want her to be part of my family. And so it seems like this self-protective act. Listen, just call yourself my sister, not my wife, and my life will be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So what's going on here? It's kind of a weird story. That's hard for us to get. Well, one is this, is that if if Sarai is Abram's wife, then legitimately, if she is in that culture, think about a patriarchal culture where the women are protected under the blessing and the covering of a household, then Abram at that point is a threat if anyone else would want to take Sarai as their own. But if Abram is her brother, then he is the patriarch that is responsible for her and no longer is he a threat, but he is now somebody that needs to be appeased to win her hand in marriage. So if you're coming to Abram as a husband, you're coming to Abram as a threat that needs to be removed. If you're coming to Abram as her patriarch, you're coming to her patriarch as her guardian who needs to be bribed, so to speak. And so Abram's got a plan here. It's not just simply to save his own skin, but instead he knows now if there's a bunch of dudes that want to marry my wife, who's actually actually my wife, who's my sister. I put the quotes in the wrong place on that one. They're going to bring gifts. They're going to bring wedding bride. They're going to try. They're going to bring me uh, cows and camels. They're going to try to to win her hand in marriage. And listen, sir, this is actually a great plan. Because you stay my sister, and we can get rich off these people. And once the famine ends, we disappear in the covering of night, and we're blessed for it. This blessing God promised, I got a strategy that will get us there. We've seen shortcuts in the Bible up to this point, haven't we? We also see how they go. Because the plan works. Guys, there are men that are coming to Abram. They're wanting to bless him, but the plan almost works too well. Because she doesn't just attract the attention of the men in that community. She attracts the attention of the most important man in that community, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh doesn't ask permission. Pharaoh takes. And what does Pharaoh do? He takes Sarai into his own household. And it's at this point in the story that all of Abram's plans begin to unravel. Because now he's completely out of control. She is now in Pharaoh's house under Pharaoh's mercy, under Pharaoh's roof. And what God had planned, his His planned promises that that we know as the story goes, that he planned to, to bless the world through Abram and Sarai, to carry out his covenant through this couple and their family, could come to a screeching halt because Pharaoh's gotten in the way. But God protects his people and he protects Sarai And it says, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now there's a great foreshadow that's happening here. Because there's another story that will come... A few generations down the road where God will afflict Pharaoh and his people with plague so that he will let his people go. But here we see God do the same thing for Pharaoh to protect Sarai. And sure enough, they leave with all of the things that they've been given. So I'm going to get academic for just a second, so bear with me but it's important as you're uh, reading through Genesis and and understanding uh, how the author is carrying out his story. And I'll say this, as I say almost every week, way more important than anything that I have to say from up here is uh, what God would want to speak to you through his word as you study it on your own. So I strongly encourage you, dive into Genesis. Begin to ask God, God, what are you doing here? If there's things that kind of strike you or bother you, that rub you the wrong way, ask God, God, what is this about? Be willing to ask him hard questions and then and ask him, how do you want to form and, and change me as a result of what you're saying here? That's way more important. But one tool, just so you know, uh, give you a little theology lesson or academic lesson, is it's called a chiasm. Say that with me. Chiasm. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep you awake. All right. So a chiasm is actually a really simple structure. It appears all throughout Genesis. And a chiasm is simply this. It's, it's a... Uh, it's a repeating structure where what is said at the beginning gets repeated at the end. And so line, the first line echoes the last line of a chiasm. The second line echoes the second-to-last line of a chiasm. The third line echoes the third-to-last line of, as a chiasm. You kind of see it's kind of this building triangle. The reason it matters is because the point of a chiasm is to draw attention to whatever is at the center of that chiasm. And so we see chiasms all throughout Genesis. And what the author is wanting you to get is, yes, there's important things we can pull out of the story. But the point of the story is whatever is at the center of that chiastic structure. And so let's continue on. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Hopefully if you were awake at the beginning of the sermon, it's what we talked about. That Abram, when he is following God and he is shown the land, the first thing he does is what? He builds a... Altar, that's right. And he calls on the name of the... He doesn't build, call it on his own name. He doesn't build a, 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 a city for himself. He makes what's permanent the presence of God. And so at the end of this weird little uh, scenario with, with Sarai and Pharaoh, Abram goes back to Bethel. He goes back to that place of worship and he calls again on the name of the Lord. So we have a beginning and an end. So we begin to follow that through. We have Abram who... In Bethel, it's called, it builds an altar, calls on the name of the Lord, and then he does the same there in, uh, in chapter 13. In, uh, in verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt. In verse 1 of 13, A- Abram went up from Egypt. We see at the beginning of, or in 12, that it's about Sarai being my sister, not my wife. And then at the end, Pharaoh, who's upset because it's his wife, not his sister, And what we find at the center of that chiasm is this. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. The center of that chiasm is the moment at which all of Abram's plans begin to unravel when it all starts to fall apart. The point of that chiasm is Abram's greatest failure to not keep listening and not keep trusting God when he almost lost everything. And so the question then becomes, what does Abram do in response to his biggest failure? To the moment that he almost lost it all? Does he let that failure define his future? Does he let... That momentary lapse when God took a back seat and Abram took control dictate what happens next? No, what we see is that Abram, even in light of what could have been the most embarrassing, flawed moment of his story, finds his way back to God. He goes back to that place of permanence with God. He goes back to that place of worship and back to that place that God last showed up. And why does that matter for us? Because there are some of us that there are moments in our lives, our greatest failures, our greatest points of embarrassment, when we walked away from God, when we tried to take, take control of our life and when ended up all falling apart in our hands, that we are still dragging along with us the baggage from our past. That instead of moving forward with God into the future, where our failures become lessons that reveal his grace, instead our failures become parts of our identity that keep us from moving forward with the Lord. Here's a way to think about it. Is there any moment or season of your life that you're not willing to tell the story? That when you think about that point, it wants you to go into hiding with shame or guilt. Where there's a part of your story that you're not willing to tell. Because that part of that story is is way more about your failure, your shame, what happened to you, than about what God can do. Even in our greatest moments of weakness. Even in our greatest flaws and failures. And what God is inviting us into in our own story is go, to go back into those places of pain, to go back into those places of shame and embarrassment with him. And as he reframes our story, that is not simply about our failure. Instead, it's about his grace. How he met us in that moment, how he carried us through, how he was still faithful. He continued to show up. And his promises are still true. Where are those places of pain in your life that Jesus is inviting you to bring to him so that he can rewrite your story? He can't change your past, but he can reset your future. And Abram was not willing to let this moment when it almost all fell apart dictate what happened next. But he found his place back to the story with God and he kept leaning in, he kept following the voice, he kept listening, and he kept moving with God forward. We're gonna continue to worship this morning. But there's two things I would love to just see uh, that we wrestle with and process out of this story. I mean, there's there's way more, but two I wanna draw attention to. And one is simply that question of, are there places that God is asking you to leave? Are there places in your life that you're still sitting in error, and he is calling you forward? Where it's comfortable, where it feels safe, but God is asking you to take a risk. Where that's to leave the gods of the past, the things that you've held on to for a sense of security or stability, identity, significance, Where are the places God is asking, inviting you to leave, to move forward with him? And the second is, are there any places in your past you need to let go with God to move forward into his future? And so as we worship together, I invite you just to, as we do each way, take communion, this reminder of the body, the blood of Christ, this act of covenant of God making us one with himself as Jesus as he gathered there with his disciples in that upper room and he took that bread and he said, this is my body given for you. That final ultimate act where God would fulfill what he would promised all the way back to Abram, that through the line of Abram, all of the people on earth would be blessed. And in Christ, the presence of God available to us at every moment. And then Jesus took that cup of redemption he said, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the blood of a new covenant, of new relationship, new oneness with God. And so I invite you just to come and to kneel at the cross. And if there's things that you need to release to God, if there's places that you've been holding on to, places of sh- shame or guilt, failure or fear, and just lay them before Jesus in exchange to receive the grace and the love, the forgiveness that he extends. Or maybe it's in faith to recognize, God, I've been holding back. I've been staying comfortable and you've been inviting me to move forward with you. Yes, God, I will go. So I wanna pray for us, invite you in this time of just communion with the Lord receiving his forgiveness and his presence and provision as we worship in response to his word. And so Lord, thank you that your word living and active speaks into each of our own stories and our own lives in such unique and personal ways. And so I pray God for all of your sons and daughters, even right now, that you know every step of their journey, the times they wandered the farthest away from you and the times they walked the closest with you and you've never left them. And so God, I pray for any here that are still covered by their own sense of guilt or shame, the places of their own failure. Their sin has separated them from you. And I pray for right now, Lord, for that courage to be honest with you, to invite you into that place, to receive your forgiveness and your grace, Lord, that you would become the center of our story, the rightful king and Lord of our lives. And then, Lord, I ask as a people, will you move us forward into your purposes and your promises, not just for our sake, not that we would be blessed, but that we might become a blessing to all of those that we encounter in the places that we dwell. We raise up a people that listen, obey, and follow. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.